Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Talking Tall Rounds. I'm Eric Roselli, and I'm here with Amit Goyle, proud father now of three kids. We're looking forward to talking about another really fantastic Tall Rounds session uh, where we focus on rescue from cardiac arrest. As always, we start with a patient-centered approach. What's unique about this is we have, uh, as always, a, a fellow on the podium describing the, the event, the patient who had the cardiac arrest's presentation from a clinical perspective. Uh, Amit, you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, Dr. Roselli, uh, glad to be back. Uh, you know, my good friend and co-fellow Rob Montgomery reviewed the case of a 60-year-old man with a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and tobacco use, who initially presented with chest pain at a regional center, found to have anterior ST elevation MI, complicated by VF arrest, and ultimately treated at that facility with a drug-eluting stent to the LAD. However, he was noted to have worsening ST elevations after he was transferred to the Cleveland Clinic for a shock, and it was found on real coronary angiography to have a left main intramural hematoma, essentially a dissection, likely iatrogenic. He, they decided to take him for a four-vessel cabbage, uh, temporize him with an intraaortic balloon pump, and uh, pre-op switched him from tachagrelor to intravenous cangrelor, a short-acting form of the P2Y12 inhibitor. Thankfully, he was able to be discharged on post-op day six after a good course. And, you know, one thing that's important about his case is uh, there's a lot that goes into that initial upfront acute hospitalization, but really the care of patients like this is lifelong. So after he was discharged, he uh, was engaged with cardiac rehab. He got plugged in with preventive cardiology, quit smoking, and was placed on a PCSK9 inhibitor. This was an awesome save from so many perspectives. And what's really special about this Tall Rounds presentation is we got to hear from the patient himself. Uh, Mr. McHugh is, uh, is a person who's been connected with the Cleveland Clinic and allowed us to use his name and, and to come to the podium and discuss his perspective of what he went through. And it's, uh, it's, not, an, uh, it's not a rare story. It, it's a common story that many listeners in our audience probably um, have heard similar things before and a testament to our ability to, to save people's lives every day. Even though we're in this different kind of stressed environment, cardiovascular disease is still the leading cause of death. And, and fortunately, a lot of us are still, are still able to do what we do to address those problems. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about what he shared with us? Uh, yeah. You know, Dr. Roselli, it was so powerful to hear his perspective because you know, like uh, like how all the tall rounds are organized, it really embodies how we practice care and it really the patient is at the center. Um, he was very eloquent and there were a few quotes I took away uh, meaning from. The first was, he said, it was a very scary and enlightening procedure, which just uh, reminds us of the, the bravery and courage that our patients, um, you know, exhibit in front of us while they're under our care. We can learn a lot from them. The second was, and he was talking about, uh, you know, following his initial presentation in the ED, and then when he woke up later, he said, I lost a week. And that reminded me, uh, you know, a lot of the care that we provide in the hospital, the counseling, the emotional support, especially for these critically ill patients, is really for the family. The family is there living everything day in and day out, uh, whereas the patient may have just, you know, remember when, you, when they went in and 
uh, when they get discharged. The third was, uh, he said, I quote, the night before I rode my Peloton for 45 minutes. So here was a patient who had this catastrophic presentation, but he was fine and asymptomatic uh, until right before. And so, you know, this is a patient who did have risk factors and uh, really a lot of our focus has to be both primary prevention in patients with risk factors, as well as primordial prevention uh, to prevent the onset of risk factors themselves, because patients could be fine until they're not. The fourth was, and I quote, to the teams of doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers, I want to say thank you. Uh, just a reminder, um, really underscores how the kind of care that goes into taking care of people like him. It's the multidisciplinary team of uh, one, doctors, right? The cardiologists, intensivists, anesthesiologists, surgeons, interventionalists, and more, as well as all of the allied health professionals that help take care of him, the nurses, the therapists, and, and, and others. And the fifth was, I know it's your job, but your job saved my life. You know, and for everyone that shows up to work every day, uh, there's just, it can't be anything more rewarding than that. Yeah, that was awesome. You know, one of the things that's been really fun about putting all these Tall Rounds events together is how we bring together all of a, a multidisciplinary team and, and we give, give each other, you know, a chance to talk about our perspective on, on the things that we do every day. And uh, the one thing that we've been lacking a bit is getting that perspective of the patient. So it was particularly um, enlightening and, and, and special to hear from him. It's a real important message, especially now when our sort of, you know, mental bandwidth is being stretched by, um, by all the stress of, of the environment we're in with, with the pandemic sort of flaring and, and whatnot. Uh, it's nice to have a patient testimonial to center us all and, and bring us back together. And, and nobody understands sort of that probably as well as the emergency department physicians who are really at the front line dealing with these patients. Um, you know, he was he was treated with a really, you know, uh, expeditious manner initially at another hospital. It did a fantastic job. And, and thank God we have so many good uh, emergency services uh, in, in our country. We heard from Michael Phelan to give us his overview of what they see and and uh, and their protocols for managing out of hospital circulatory uh, and cardiac arrest. Um, and he touched on a lot of very important points about their view. Yeah, Dr. Roselli, it was great to hear from him because, uh, like you said, the ED is really at the forefront of this, and they're tasked with uh, managing these patients up front when they're still undifferentiated and providing the proper triage after being the first, you know, like the work they do is really the, the foundation for the work that uh, we're able to do in the CCU and thereafter. So he first established the epidemiology of cardiac arrest, in-hospital cardiac arrest, about 209,000 per year, out of hospital, 360,000. At main campus, uh, pretty busy. We have 180 per year, but regionally in our system, about 1,000. The survival has steadily improved, but only modestly so, and is very different, as we know, from uh, shockable rhythms versus non-shockable rhythms. And he touched on some key aspects from his perspective as a, a proximate responder. One was the importance really the chief importance of high quality CPR without interruptions. And he provided some tips and tricks of how to avoid interruptions or minimize interruptions. The utility of end tidal capnography, um, that CO2 level that can help us gauge the efficacy of the CPR, as well as um, diagnose the time of ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation. 
the utility of point of care ultrasound, how it can help us identify reversible etiologies as well as identify or um, ease the pulse checks, but how you know not used appropriately, they can also um, avoid, uh, cause uh, delays or uh, interruptions in high quality CPR. And his caveats on advanced airway, how uh, jumping to an early intubation can also be another opportunity for delaying CPR and uh, the utility of supraglottic airways uh, in their stead. Um, he went over nuances of specific approaches to PEA arrest and VTVF. And so I certainly recommend for the audience to take a look at this presentation in its entirety. Yeah, it was fantastic. And again, really important for, uh, especially for us cardiovascular specialists who see these patients after they arrive to the hospital, understand uh, in detail of, uh, you know, of what they're doing to improve the, of what they do for these patients before they come to us. Similarly, we heard from uh, Don Marciniak, who runs our uh, CMET team or cardiac medical emergency uh, response team here uh, in the Cleveland Clinic, who has done a fantastic job. Don is a, is a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist and, and Shannon Pangle is the nurse director of nursing for our Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute. And they've done a really wonderful job of standardizing the clinical response team to help resuscitate patients when those medical emergencies happen in-house. And they've demonstrated uh, a really uh, incredible rescue rate, which is something that can uh, be a model for other teams. Uh, he shared some of that information with us and their experience. Yeah, you know, the effort that goes into the emergency response teams, uh, both in our institution and I'm sure in many other institutions, is just uh, one Herculean and two so important. Um, our CMET team or the cardiac medical emergency response team is very busy, 700 to 800 activations just per month. So you can imagine how many there are every day. But incredibly, despite the complexity and the degree of illness that we see on a day-to-day basis, we're at the 99th percentile for risk-adjusted survival. And I think there's a lot that goes into that. You know, one is just the coordination of the team model. Everyone is experienced. Everyone's there to get the job done. Um, two is the timeliness of response. You know, the the for, uh, bedside providers are encouraged to call and activate a CMET at any first indication. And with regards to first indications of something going awry, uh, Shannon Pengel went over um, how we monitor these patients. Right there is both the um, you know the monitor that's at the nurses unit, but there's also a secondary monitor or the central monitoring unit that is um, a separate unit that's tasked with monitoring all of the uh, hospitals in our system to uh, essentially provide a risk-based system and early notification of uh, patients going downhill. And just, you know, my perspective as a fellow who's carried the CMET pager and gone to many of these activations, I just have to say that uh, the, the response is just amazing. It's expedient, it's experienced. And as a fellow, I always felt that, you know, the, the whole team is there to support me and take care of the patient. And so I'm not surprised at the, uh, uh, the success of this whole system. Yeah, the control of that chaos when everybody sort of knows their, knows their role, it's really qu- quite, a, quite a special thing to be a part of. And then to see what happens afterward. A- after you resuscitate a patient and you, you get them back to, I guess, that point where you, where you have hope, um, and then you move them on to the next phase of care uh, to, to address what the underlying cause is to further further assess it and, and, um, and limit the collateral damage uh, in an intensive care unit setting 
is just as important to achieve those those ultimate ultimately important outcomes, uh, like like being able to hear from Mr. McHugh to tell us, you know, to tell us that he's still here to live a good life. Um, Absolutely. And and Penelope Rampersad is a, a specially trained um, cardiology critical care specialist who updated us on on what happens in that uh, uh, return of you know post return of spontaneous. Uh, spontaneous cardiac function uh, situation with a real focus on the therapeutic hypothermia aspect of that. Right. Therapeutic hypothermia, the question is, uh, which patients and when? Yeah, so first, she established uh, the paradigm, right? Post-ROSC, we know that a lot of the death post-resuscitation is related to the cardiac injury. The brain as an organ is extraordinarily sensitive to the hypoxemic environment and metabolic dysregulation. And the post-cardiac arrest syndrome is uh, multifactorial. One is the global ischemia secondary to the downtime itself. Two is reperfusion injury from achieving ROSC. And three is the underlying driver of uh, the, the whole process. Pathophysiologically, the postcardiac arrest syndrome, um, there are two important insults, right? One is the ischemic insult, which causes loss of ATP, switch to anaerobic metabolism, as well as calcium dysregulation, all resulting in programmed cell death. And the second insult is that of the reperfusion, the reperfusion injury with hyperemia and oxidative stress. The, th the promise here is that therapeutic hypothermia can modulate these adverse pathophysiologic um, processes with minimizing ischemic and reperfusion neurologic injury. But there's no free lunch, right? Everything comes with a downside. And the adverse effects of therapeutic hypothermia are abnormalities with immune functions, so increased risk for sepsis, especially with all the nosocomial exposures in these patients, coagulopathy and risk of bleeding, electrolyte imbalance and dysrhythmias. So again, the question is which patients and when, and she reviewed the studies that got us to where we are. So in 2002, there were two important NEJM studies, Barnard study and Ahaka study, looking at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest secretive VF, that show that therapeutic hypothermia led to improved neurologic outcomes as well as survival. But the control arm here, there was no regulation. And so a lot of these patients were febrile. And so the question was, is it the therapeutic hypothermia to 33 degrees Celsius that led to benefit or was it the pyrexia that led to harm? Right. There was an attempt to answer this question in 2013, Nielsen et al., again, NEJM, where they looked at regulated therapeutic hypothermia at 33 versus regulated normothermia at 36 in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest from both shockable and non-shockable rhythms. And in this situation, they found no difference in survival or neurologic outcomes. And so the thought was, maybe really the benefit is from avoiding fever. And then in NEJM 2019 by Les Carreux et al., uh, just last year uh, from France, attempted to answer the question of what do you do with non-shockable rhythms because the majority of the data up until this point was uh, surrounded around shockable rhythms. They took uh, 581 patients with non-shockable cardiac arrest to either 24 hours uh, of hypothermia at 33 degrees Celsius versus 48 hours of normothermia. There was actually just a small, modest benefit in the CPC score of neurologic performance. But the limitations here were delayed time to randomization, and the cooling mechanisms varied. And so, you know, there was a small benefit, but the question of uh, the mechanism and the patient population was at hand. And so the summary that Dr. Ramprasad took away from these studies was that there's probably a, is a benefit of targeted temperature management with shockable and non-shockable rhythms. 
but because the benefit is it may be modest, the, the population is still perhaps unclear, uh, we have to pay attention to the contraindications. Is the patient at increased risk for infection? Are they increased risk for bleeding? Um, and the questions remain, which patients, what temperature, what duration to regulate? And so I think there's a lot of work to be done, um, but it's probably beneficial for a majority of these patients. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I thought that was a really great review. You know, as you start to delve into this, it definitely ask many more questions. There are some new technologies that that are under development and have been actually for quite some time. A lot of people are exploring this idea about more focused cooling in better ways. Um, you know, is there ways to make the brain or the central nervous system cooler without uh, having the ill effects of of cold uh, on the heart? You know, we know if the heart gets too cold, it's prone to arrhythmia, and, and you don't want to have any of those secondary insults. We know from the cardiac surgical world where, you know, we use temperature quite a bit to protect both heart and brain that uh, it seems like the, the temperature does matter. Uh, certainly time is most important. And, um, and it was good to hear this sort of perspective, both from, from the emergency medicine team that talked about out of hospital uh, cardiac arrest and from, from our internal team, our, our CMAT team about internal cardiac arrest. Because I really like the way that that Dr. Ramper said framed this discussion initially about talking about the different mechanisms of injury, that global ischemia downtime, and that reperfusion injury. And I think it's really important for for those of us that are that are taking care of these patients, because especially as cardiovascular specialists, we're going to see a lot of these people where we have a witness to rest, and so the global ischemic time might be relatively shorter. And what we're seeing is reperfusion injury in patients. And so you have to trust that, you know, if you've responded quickly enough and this patient isn't maybe responding clinically the way you want them to initially, uh, to trust what you've done and give time for that reperfusion injury to process and improve. And I always talk about using the, the brain imaging as a guide as to sort of how long to 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 follow these patients and, and really know the history and the story of, of what went on during that cardiac arrest period of time. I, I think those two groups of patients are quite different. The out-of-hospital where it's unclear how long that global ischemic downtime is and that in-house or, or witness arrest patient uh, where we have a better sense of global ischemic time, which could be shorter and now we have to deal with the reperfusion injury. A lot of important questions to answer and definitely an area where we can continue to improve. As we see these, these reperfused hearts recover, we know that one of the mechanisms of major injury and, and loss to these patients are the arrhythmias they can have afterward. And so we heard from Mandy uh, Bargava uh, from our electrophysiology group talk to us about the EP approach to these patients who have sudden cardiac death and, and what to do with their, their post uh, arrhythmias. Yeah, this was a great bird's eye view of an electrophysiologist's uh, perspective of sudden cardiac death. And of course, a lot of these, um, a majority of these rather, are related to tachyarrhythmias. And the risk factor for a lot of these tachyarrhythmic cardiac arrests in the adult population are related to ischemic heart disease or coronary heart disease. My main takeaway from his talk were the four main types of ventricular arrhythmias in acute myocardial infarction, them being one, early ventricular arrhythmias in the first 24 to 48 hours, 
either primary VF related to intramural micro re-entry at the infarct border zones or secondary VF related to the ensuing shock and heart failure. The mortality here in these patients is twice as high as patients without these early ventricular arrhythmias, but a lot of the mortality is not from an additional arrhythmia itself, and so the role of ICD therapy is unclear. Number two, the delayed ventricular arrhythmias that occur in the first uh, three days post-MI. These are related prim primarily to the enhanced autonomic tone in, the, in those early days, with refractory arrhythmias often from incomplete or failed revascularization. The management here, in addition to antiarrhythmic drugs, includes mechanical circulatory support to uh, support those hemodynamics, as well as autonomic modulation, both general anesthesia and in refractory cases, a ganglion block. The long-term mortality here is five times higher, and so there probably is a benefit to ICD therapy. The third are reperfusion arrhythmias. These are, uh, you know, ectopy, could be sustained VT or VF, but the most specific is AIVR or the idioventricular rhythms, usually occurring very early post-reperfusion in the first 30 to 60 minutes, but really up to six hours, related to the uh, metabolic microenvironment, the washout of potassium and lactate and the other oxidative stressors. There's really no impact on the long-term prognosis from these reperfusion arrhythmias, and therefore there's no need to provide specific therapy. They're benign and uh, self-limited. Number four are the late or chronic ventricular arrhythmias occurring in the first uh, one to three weeks post-infarct related to the healing of the, the infarcted scar with risk factors related to the scar burden, right? With multivessel disease, a large anterior infarct with aneurysm formation being the highest risk. These are related to macro re-entry around the border zones of the infarct, and they may be amenable to catheter-based ablation based on their mechanism. So the four acute MI-associated ventricular arrhythmias are the early ventricular arrhythmias, delayed ventricular arrhythmias, reperfusion arrhythmias, and the late or chronic arrhythmias. He also talked about nuances related to catheter-based ablation of arrhythmias, as well as ICD therapy in ischemic cardiac myopathy. So definitely a very comprehensive talk uh, worth uh, watching for the audience. Yeah, I thought that was great. Again, how he differentiated the various time courses and, and an understanding. And, you know, going back to our patient as a very good example of someone who had that culprit lesion addressed, but not all of his coronary disease uh, addressed uh, initially, there was this uh, continued evaluation of the situation that he was in and, uh, and a focus on, on making sure we optimize his therapy so that we could save as much myocardium as possible. And that requires the whole team from, from all perspectives. Uh, first off, the interventional cardiology team needs to work closely with the cardiac surgical and critical care team to help in all of that decision-making process. And our next two speakers uh, are going to address those issues. Uh, first, we hear from Grant Reed, one of our structural heart specialists and interventional cardiologists, uh, to speak to the, uh, the question surrounding the role and timing of catheterization after cardiac arrest. And he's going to address some very specific questions for us. You want to give us a quick outline of, of what he's going to be talking about? Yeah. You know, these patients, we say, uh, we know that a lot of cardiac arrest is related to acute MI. And so the issue of when to look for coronary obstruction and when to intervene are important questions that come up time again, and the answers aren't very clear. So uh, here are some questions I'll leave the audience to think about, and we'll have Dr. Reed give us the answers. Number one, if you were the cath attending, what would you do for the following three patients? Our first patient is one with cardiac arrest, 
where the EKG either pre-arrest or post-arrest showed ST elevations. Our second patient is a patient with uh, VF arrest who did not have ST elevations on the post-arrest EKG. And our third patient is a patient with PEA arrest who did not have ST elevations in the post-arrest EKG. The second question he answers is, what are the clinical features that convey an unfavorable prognosis? And he'll go over these, these seven clinical features, but the answer is really important, right? Because uh, when you're thinking about what to do with these patients, both the mechanism of arrest as well as a prognosis is so important to parse out um, in defining the best approach and the goals of care for that individual patient. And the third question is, what is the ACE approach to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? And this was an approach developed um, uh, here at the Cleveland Clinic uh, related to, you know, how do you answer these complex decisions as, as a multidisciplinary team to make sure we're doing the best for every single patient personalized to their specific scenarios? Yeah, that's that's great. So now now we'll hear from Dr. Grant Reed addressing those specific questions. I'm going to follow up with a lot of what we've already talked about today and take a step back and just discuss what, what is the role and timing of diagnostic angiography as well as PCI in patients that have cardiac arrest, whether that be due to ST segment elevation MI or due to another mechanism. So uh, just as Dr. Phelan said, it's, it's, it's very important upfront to understand the mechanism of your arrest so that you can treat it most effectively in an ACLS setting. This is a very commonly encountered issue. It's somewhat controversial. It's an issue that we get presented with all the time uh, as interventional cardiologists. Patients that come in post-arrest may have an uncertain prognosis. Will you take this patient to the cath lab? And it's our job to triage this, work with the providers um, that, are, that are asking as well as the family to come up with the right decision. And really, the, it all comes down to understanding the mechanism of the arrest and what the patient's prognosis is. And, and the initial EKG, pre-arrest can be very helpful, as well as the EKG post-arrest. So in patients with ST segment elevation on EKG prior to or after ROSC, those patients should be presumed to have a STEMI. And just as Dr. Bargava said, um, they do much better with immediate coronary angiography and revascularization if, if, if indicated. Now, there's a subset of patients that may have baseline ST segment elevations, subset of patients that may have a non- um, a non-STEMI-related reason for a VTVF arrest. Um, however, we can, should, should consider it a default pathway that patients that have ST segment elevation on EKG should be, should be um, taken to the cath lab. Um, patients that have a VTVF arrest that do not have ST segment elevation on EKG, um, you should really strongly consider it. And there's about a third of patients will have a culprit lesion on the catheterization despite not having ST segment elevation. These may be patients with a circumflex um, lesion um, or uh, maybe something that's just um, uh, electrically um, silent. Um, but nonetheless, those are patients that I think there's less ambiguity about. Patients that have an arrest that is not due to VTVF that do not have ST segment elevation on the EKG fall into a, quote, grayer area. And, and these are often patients with PA arrest. And, and the, the pathway that we've been following mostly at the clinic and nationally is to triage patients to a medical or a coronary ICU um, where they can be further evaluated and decision to proceed with catheterization can then be um, decided on really based on the underlying illness and the presumed cause of arrest. So. Um, Dr. Bargava mentioned some favorable resuscitation features. Well, some unfavorable resuscitation features, which we consider are those patients with an unwitnessed arrest 
without bystander CPR. Patients that do not have VF as the initial rhythm, have a prolonged period of ROSC, have an elevated lactate or a low pH, which go hand in hand, patients that are old with other major medical comorbidities. These are patients that we might want to have a, a pause about because their overall prognosis is actually very poor no matter what we do. And it's not just one of these features, but it's the overall picture of the patient that is important to consider. As an interventional section, we've actually put a lot of time and effort into, into forming a, a guideline that we can use when we're maybe receiving these patients in the middle of the night and, and trying to decide on what to do. And, and patients that have at least two unfavorable resuscitation features, we, we say as a guideline, those are patients which we, we may decide to triage to the CICU to help, help figure out and then take them to the lab if, if it's evident that ischemia is the cause of their arrest. But a team-based approach is essential. <clears throat> and um, all those, those patients that have a VTVF arrest, we do recommend therapeutic hyperthermia, as uh, Dr. Ramprasad had, had mentioned. So why do we why do we have this the, these guidelines and and not to go through all of the data here but I want to highlight the highest quality randomized controlled trial in this area as well as a meta analysis that our group just put together on this. So the COAC trial was a randomized controlled trial in this area, very hard to conduct an RCT in this topic, but this is a very well done study. Uh, it was well powered to detect outcomes. 552 patients with an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that did not have SD segment elevation on their EKG upon ROSC. This was a contemporary and generalizable patient population. Actually, about 78% had a witness arrest. They had a relatively reasonable time to ROSC with 15 minutes, and I would argue that's actually better than a lot of patients that we see. And their baseline pH was around 7.2. And with, here you can see a very mild troponin elevation. Sometimes this is something which we encounter where we have patients that have a PA arrest or an unknown you know, cause for an initial arrest and have a very mild troponin elevation. What do you do in those patients? Well, this is the, that patient population. What we found was that only around 15% of patients had unstable coronary lesions on angiography although up to two-thirds of them had significant coronary disease. So coronary disease is very prevalent in general. You're going to find it. What do you do with it in patients that have an out-of-hospital arrest that you're not convinced that STEMI is the cause? Now, this is a, a tough decision that we could put in. Um, a table highlighting clinical outcomes, which I'm going to show even better here in this Kaplan-Meier curve, is that there's really no difference to survival in 90 days between those patients who had delayed coronary angiography or immediate coronary angiography. And these are patients that underwent catheterization within the first two hours versus later, essentially, within a day, sometimes three days, or even longer. There's no difference in survival at 90 days and no difference in neurologic function for this or any of the secondary endpoints. So you can see here is the Kaplan-Meier curves are essentially superimposed on one another. So we took those data and actually all of the other smaller RCTs and prospective studies and did a pooled analysis of this. And this is actually a paper that, that myself, Dr. Kapati, and Dr. Uh, Dr. Verma, uh, among others, uh, are, are now publishing in, in JAK Intervention. This should be coming out soon. So we compared this, this early intervention or early diagnostic angiography with intervention if needed to non-early, which is in the most cases more than 24 hours. Definition is somewhat heterogeneous, but that's about the best that we can pin down. There was no difference in 30-day mortality um, or neurologic outcomes. And among patients who did have a culprit lesion and actually underwent PCI, there, there still was no difference in outcome. Again, these are not the STEMIs. These are patients that maybe have an N-STEMI, maybe have a PA arrest and are, are found to have a, uh, you know, a, quote, culprit lesion or maybe a lesion which we could consider 
which somewhat contribute, uh, you know, making contribution to their uh, overall prognosis. But again, no overall difference in mortality and no difference between U.S. or non-U.S. hospitals. So putting it all together, we have a nice algorithm that we use as a section and we've now published called the ACE framework for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest without ST segment elevation. We assess patients based on their cardiac and non-cardiac status for unfavorable resuscitation features. We, we consult as a team approach with the interventional cardiologist, the CICU team, and the family to define short and long-term goals of care, and then we set expectations. These expectations should be realistic, and upfront we can plan. If these patients need mechanical support, we can plan on that right away. And just knowing that this timing between early and non-early angiography, um, it's, um, it's unlikely to make a difference in those patients without clear STEMI on EKG. So this really just summarizes all of that and just emphasize this is a team-based approach. It's something that that we really um, enjoy taking part of and playing this role in patients' care. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it's ultimately a shared decision between the interventionalist, the CICU team, and, and the, the patient that the family serving as a surrogate. Thanks. That was, uh, that was really wonderful to hear from Dr. Dr. Reed, especially with the um, conversation about how the team needs to come together and use that ACE approach to, to help personalize the decision-making for patients. The other mechanical options for treating patients with coronary disease and, and it's particularly those patients with, with cardiac arrest are surgical. And so our next speaker will be Ed Soltes, who's the, the surgical director of our uh, heart failure team. We'll talk about the surgical considerations, uh, specifically coronary bypass grafting in, in patients that we've been discussing today. Yeah, this is a great talk. You know, the issue of emergency cabbage comes up time and again, and I've been on the cat side of the, this question, um, but it's a, it's a decision not to be taken lightly, right? These are sick patients, uh, and it's a very important question. So the, for the audience, uh, here are some questions to think about. Dr. Soltes will answer for us momentarily. Number one is, what are the indications for emergency cabbage, both within the acute MI setting and outside of that? Number two, when should emergency cabbage not be performed? And you know, the answer to this question is just as important as the answer to the first question. Number three, what factors define surgical risk? Uh, and this is critical, right? Because these um, factors, as we think through them, uh, you know, we, we have to make sure we take the right patient for any procedure, cabbage or not cabbage, uh, because remember, first, do no harm. And so we have to make sure that we're not taking somebody who's not going to benefit. Number four, what is the right time period for taking a post-MI patient for urgent cabbage? Um, there's some controversy here that Dr. Soltes goes into the nuances for. And lastly, number five, what are the approaches to mechanical circulatory support, uh, both pre- and post-op uh, from cabbage? And so our next speaker will be Ed Soltes, who's the surgical director of our uh, heart failure team. So I'm going to round up our talks today by talking about emergency coronary artery bypass. That's obviously what Jim had, and we'll discuss um, when should we do emergency coronary artery bypass and how should we do emergency coronary artery bypass. So if you look at the guidelines provided by the 2011 ACCHA, uh, you'll realize that there are a few situations where emergency coronary artery bypass surgery is recommended in situations with acute MI. That is to say, in patients who've had failed or not possible PCI, who have also have persistent ischemia in a significant myocardial area at rest or hemodynamic instability refractory to non-surgical therapy. 
Also, patients are appropriate for emergency cabbage if, if they've had post-infarct mechanical complications of an MI, such as a ventricular septal rupture, severe MR, or free wall rupture. Also, those who are in cardiogenic shock are appropriate candidates for emergency cabbage. And finally, those who have life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias that are thought to be ischemic in origin and who have a significant substrate of myocardium at risk uh, based on their catheterization. Now, there certainly are patients who are not appropriate candidates for emergency surgery, specifically those who even have persistent ischemia but only have a very small area of myocardium at risk. Also, those who have the no reflow phenomenon uh, after successful uh, epicardial revascularization. These patients could potentially develop harm from emergency surgery. Now, there's considerable debate as to the timing of emergency surgery. Those who recommend early surgery, that is to say within six to eight hours after initial symptoms of an acute MI, would suggest that operating early limits infarct size, decreases the progressive adverse LV remodeling that can occur over time, and also decreases the potential risks that, potent that could happen uh, in the uh, waiting period for surgery, such as arrhythmias or, or shock. But those who advocate for delayed surgery would, rec would suggest that uh, early surgery will lead to ischemia reperfusion damage and hemorrhagic extension of the infarction. Also, uh, there can be exacerbation of the acute inflammatory syndrome that occurs during cardiopulmonary bypass. And finally, um, of course, the bleeding uh, that uh, may ensue because of recent uh, antiplatelet administration. That could be worse early rather than delayed. There have been many studies looking at the timing of surgery, and they've all come up with different conclusions, some suggesting that there is a time mortality association and others suggesting just the opposite. These are just a two, of very large, two of the very large studies that suggested that, that operating early engenders a significant increase in mortality risk. But this more recent study suggested just the opposite, showing that even out to five years, there's no difference in uh, neither survival uh, nor uh, uh, MACE readmissions, uh, whether you operate within 24 hours or later than uh, 24 hours. You can even look at it from the perspective of what you should do on the weekend operations. And this recent paper showed that there was no difference in mortality with that weekend operation, but there was a, significant, a statistically significant, although small, increase in major morbidity if you operate on the weekend. So unfortunately, all of these studies looking at timing of cabbage uh, have a significant selection bias. There's no randomized trials available, and there probably will not be in this area really because there's a difference in timing, uh, uh, definitions of timing, uh, definitions of acute MI, transmurality, and whether or not patients are in cardiogenic shock or not. The take-home message here really is that each patient needs to be looked at individually. You need to balance the risk and benefit of operating early versus delaying operation. Understanding the available risk mitigation options that your institution has, what type of mechanical support it has, and finally, of course, and most importantly, the unique patient comorbidities and conditions that exist. So clearly, a team-based approach is, is critical in making these determinations. So why do mortalities occur in these patients? We clearly know that uh, post-cardiotomy, cardiogenic shock, is usually the final common 
pathway for immortality in patients who have emergency coronary artery bypass. It occurs very in a very small percentage of our patient, uh, patient population overall, but when it does occur, the mortality rate is high. There's not much in the literature detailing it, but we do know that it is related to low ejection fraction, an acute MI, and even early surgery after an acute MI, usually with the situation where there's not appropriate mechanical support available. And there clearly also is an a, a independent association between the deleterious effects of high-dose inotropes, long cardiopulmonary bypass runs, and poor protection that leads to post-cardiotomy cardiogenic shock as well. So we need to define surgical risk. We talked about the unique characteristics of the patient. We need to understand each patient's risk going into the operation for an emergency coronary artery bypass. And it's not only ejection fraction, and it's not only the timing. It has to do with preoperative hemodynamics, so SWAN-guided therapy is critical. It has to uh, involve the assessment of target quality, how much antiplatelet therapy was administered and when, whether or not the patient's in active cardiogenic shock, and what is the status of the end organ function. We do know that preoperative stabilization with balloon pumps in multiple studies uh, have suggested that this uh, improves outcome. In this meta-analysis of 17 studies, preoperative balloon pump, as Jim had had, decreases short-term mortality, post-op MI, low cardiac output syndrome, and kidney injury uh, by a significant amount. So we would, we would advocate uh, preoperative stabilization with uh, balloon pumps, but oftentimes balloon pumps are not enough if they are needed postoperatively to maintain hemodynamics. So when we look at the strategy to use for coronary artery bypass, we can either do it on pump with a beating heart or with cardioplegic arrest stopping the heart, or we can do it off pump. And there are advantages and disadvantages to each. If you do it on pump, we obviously have significant hemodynamic stability provided by cardiopulmonary bypass, where it can do much more complete revascularization. Importantly, we can unload the ventricle for that obligate period of time around the heart-lung machine. And there's also some suggestion that with using warm retrograde induction cardioplegia, we can actually actively resuscitate the myocardium. Those who suggest off-pump is better would uh, advocate that uh, that there's no aortic manipulation, there's less bleeding. Uh, we minimize complications of cardiopulmonary bypass, specifically those related to stroke, renal dysfunction, and all the metabolic abnormalities. And we obviously don't arrest the heart. The heart is beating the entire time. It's uh, important to understand that there is more and more data uh, coming out with uh, unloading. Uh, it, clearly, when we go on the heart-lung machine uh, or with some forms of mechanical support, we unload the ventricle. That is to say, we increase myocardial oxygen supply and decrease demand. But importantly, there's also good data to suggest that we increase cardioprotective signaling in the short and long term. So there's decreased rates of, of apoptosis and uh, improved cell survival in both animal and human models. When we talk about myocardial protection for emergency cabbage, it's important to understand that cardioplegia, if used for cardiac arrest, uh, needs to be delivered anagrade, retrograde, and down the new grafts due to the significant degree of, of occlusive coronary disease that's uh, obviously driving us to that operation. We would recommend using intermittent dosed cardioplegia, Buckberg or microplegia, rather than Del Nido cardioplegia, just because there's not enough data uh, in this setting with Del Nido. 
There is some uh, data uh, to recommend warm retrograde induction cardioplegia and a hot shot. These are resuscitative maneuvers. And finally, adequate drainage and venting is obviously critical uh, for the conduct of the operation. When we talk about using conduits for emergency cabbage, many would recommend just doing vein grafts. But this is uh, an important study that, uh, that was probably the most important study in coronary artery bypass uh, literature. Came out of the Cleveland Clinic by Bruce Lytle, comparing the 10-year uh, outcome with mammary artery versus no mammary artery. So clearly, we want to have a mammary on these patients. We want to use an IMA because it confers the long-term survival. But we do have to plan for the need for temporary mechanical support to mitigate postcardiotomy cardiogenic shock. And understanding the goals of mechanical support are clearly important here. We want to restore adequate end organ perfusion with the mechanical support device. We want to be able to unload the injured ventricle, both pressure and volume unloading, and provide a ventricular specific support that allows ambulation. We want these people walking around in the ICU afterward. We don't, we, we do not want to promote uh, bed, -bound, bed bound patients. Um, and this, this type of a system would allow a safe bridge to recovery uh, or potentially transplant or permanent device. And hemodynamically, you can see the drop in the Frank Starling curve down and to the left would be the ideal support system we want. We have a number of devices available here. I'm not going to go into specifics. Needless to say that uh, there are some that directly unload the ventricle, both left and or right ventricle, some that are indirect unloading strategies, and some that do not have any unloading. Balloon pump, of course, does not provide any unloading. Um, and while it may be useful preoperatively, unfortunately, it's only 10 or 15% increase in cardiac power output at, at, in the post-operative setting really makes it a, not a terribly useful device uh, in the setting of post-cardiotomy shock. If we look at VA ECMO, which we use a lot of here in various uh, settings, uh, it can be put in very quickly. It, you can convert the current cardiopulmonary bypass cannulas to VA ECMO, but unfortunately, it does not unload the ventricle. Uh, leads to significant hemolysis. Majority of patients cannot ambulate. And there clearly is documented both cerebral and coronary hypoxia and ischemia that are present uh, with postoperative VA ECMO. And you can appreciate this with the hemodynamics here showing uh, the pressure volume loop uh, after starting ECMO, the increase in afterload and preload, significant increase in aortic pressure and left ventricular pressure. If you add in uh, a device uh, such as an impella, uh, that is able to actively unload the ventricle and ecpella circuit, you can see the uncoupling of the left ventricle and aortic pressures and the separation of these two and improvement in the hemodynamics. I think this is very important to understand what each of these devices uh, can do. So with uh, unloading with an impella in the setting of ecpella, adding an active unloading strategy to ECMO, uh, there has been suggestion that outcomes uh, are improved. When we look at Impella, it obviously provides direct LV unloading a low, with a low rate of hemolysis of, of any device. Uh, but of course, it requires active surgical placement, it means cutting down on the axillary artery or sewing a graft onto the ascending aorta. It's not simple. It requires a bit more time to insert this device uh, appropriately. So I would say that emergency coronary artery bypass is certainly at a higher risk than our standard elective coronary artery bypass. The timing is dictated by the clinical situation. A preoperative balloon pump may improve outcomes, 
Uh, attention to myocardial protection is clearly important and exactly how you're going to perform the surgery, being certain not to, not to uh, uh, skip a mammary artery because that affords the significant survival benefit long term. It's important to understand the mitigation efforts for postcardiotomy cardiogenic shock and the rapid escalation to ventricular-specific direct unloading temporary mechanical support platform if it's needed. And finally, and most importantly, I think, and in what Jim's case underscores, is a multidisciplinary team approach is clearly important for good outcomes. Thank you. Great. That wraps up uh, our Talking Tall Rounds discussion around this really ever-present ever topic of rescue from cardiac arrest, something that we continue to get better at and certainly uh, as a team can continue to improve upon. Uh, thank you for joining us for this, this discussion. Please feel free to also jump online and, and watch the Tall Rounds event where you can be provided with complimentary CME. And we look forward to talking with you again as we continue this really enjoyable uh, process of having this podcast. Thank you, Amit. Thanks, Dr. Rosalian. Thanks to our audience. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.